Good evening, everybody. Let's take a moment and cultivate our motivation. And just do a little review about the eight worldly concerns and look at our life this past week and how has it been involved with the eight worldly concerns and at what times have we actively opposed the eight worldly concerns. seeing how short our life is, how little time we have to practice, then let's make a strong determination to really stay focused and identify the eight worldly concerns when they arise in our mind and then contemplate impermanence, contemplate whatever antidotes we need in order to lessen them and in that way facilitating turning our mind to the Dharma. And when we turn our mind to the Dharma, we want to contemplate the importance of liberating ourselves from cyclic existence and remembering that all other beings are in the same situation as we are really cultivating a heart that wants to work for their long-term benefit, not just our own everyday pleasure, and in that way generate the bodhicitta. and you've been able to see the eight worldly concerns when they've been active and do something about them or are you mostly on automatic and only notice them when somebody happens to ask a question like this <laughs> more the latter more the former 
That's precisely it. If we're unhappy, it usually has to do with the eight worldly concerns. Yeah. And so the antidote to that unhappiness isn't to push and get what we want or clobber what we don't want. The antidote is to release the attachment, release the anger. And then, not just leave it at that, but then actively turn our mind to a Dharma motivation. And so we have to keep doing this again and again and again. I mean, the mind has beginningless time full of imprints of going in the wrong direction. It's not going to change overnight, is it? Yeah, it's like with any habit. It, you know, necessitates time and persistence. and yeah, That's why it's called practice the Dharma. It's not called one-stop Dharma hit the jackpot. <laughs> is it? <laughs> one-stop get it all. It's called practice, the Dharma. So we need to have that long-term vision. Okay? And then, you know, just let our mind be joyful, knowing that we're going in the right direction. You know, whenever we get there, we get there. But let's be joyful, knowing that we're going in the right direction, because for how many lifetimes have we been going in the wrong direction and not even realized it because we had no exposure to the Dharma no way to uh, ask ourselves these important kind of questions okay do you have your quizzes I don't have mine (laughs) thank you (laughs) okay let's see if we can go through all 11 questions in this one session okay so Number one, what does Santi Deva's explanation of the four establishments of mindfulness emphasize that is not emphasized by the previous explanation that we had? And why is Santi Deva's way of explaining it important? Yeah? I think it's that he emphasizes the lack of inherent this is the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's important because... Otherwise, if you don't clear that, you're just going to come back to, um, you're, you're going to cling to the aggregates, which are phenomena at some point. So even if you work on the emptiness of the person, the selflessness of the person, you're going to kind of get railroaded by clinging at your aggregates at some point. Okay, so what Shantideva emphasizes is meditating on the emptiness of inherent existence of not only the persons, but also the aggregates. Okay, because even if you contemplate, well, first of all, if you contemplate only the lack of self-sufficient, substantial existence of the person, that won't lead to liberation. And even if we contemplate the inherent, ex- the la- emptiness of inherent existence of the person, if we still cling to the aggregates as truly existent, we won't be able to have direct perception of the emptiness of inherent existence of the person. Okay. 
because when you have direct realization of one object, it's the you directly realize the emptiness of all objects. Okay. Mm-hmm. What I don't get about that though is if you had a direct realization of the emptiness of inherence of the person, since that since they aren't different, the the wisdom realizing emptiness isn't different depending on what the object is, why wouldn't both just happen? That's what I'm saying. That when you have direct realization of the emptiness of inherent existence of the person, you're also going to have direct realization of the emptiness of inherent existence of the aggregates. What I said before is if you only contemplate, mm-hmm. not have direct perception, mm-hmm. yeah, but contemplate mm-hmm. the emptiness of the person, mm-hmm. yeah, and neglect to meditate on the emptiness of also the aggregates, mm-hmm. then you'll get stuck. But still what's funny to me about that is that are you thinking that you've gotten there and you haven't? Because the emptiness is the same. Yes, but when the emptiness, at what point of are you talking about? I guess the, I'm just imagining a person who only knew to meditate on the emptiness of inherent existence of a person mm-hmm. and they didn't even know to think about the other ones. Okay. Okay. So if somebody only knows to empty, meditate on the emptiness of inherent existence, the person they don't know to meditate on the emptiness of inherent existence, the aggregate. I think that if somebody's gotten to the point where they're studying Nagarjuna and know to meditate on the emptiness of the person, they're also going to know that they need to meditate on the emptiness of the aggregate. And the thing is, when you have the direct when you have the inference, which is a conceptual understanding, you might you have that first of the emptiness of the person, but then if you switch your attention to the aggregates, you very easily and quickly have the inference that the aggregates are also empty. Okay? Okay. But when you have the direct realization of one, the direct realization of the other occurs simultaneously. Okay. Then question two. Describe how Shantideva refutes the inherent existence of the body. Yeah. Well, he refutes it by challenging it with the statement that if the body existed inherently, you should be able to find it within parts. So okay. if you're looking at it, within those parts there should be a body. Okay. So he says that if if you're going to if the body's inherently existent, you should be able to find it within the parts of the body. But if you were to go that way, you should then within each part there would be a part of a body, or within each part there would be an entire body. Okay. So then you have to say within each part of the body is there a part of the The body, body. Or is there a whole body? body within each part? Yes. So there are many bodies within yeah. each part. Yeah. Okay. So if so if there's a whole body within each part, then you wind up with many bodies. And if there's only a part of a body within each part, then what? Well, you don't have a body. Then you don't have a body. Okay. Okay. And then what does he do with the parts of the body? Because maybe, you know, somebody's going to think, okay, the body's not truly existent, but the arm is and the leg is. And 
Okay, so you also look at those and look at their parts and see that they that the body doesn't exist within or that the arm doesn't exist within the parts of the body, either as a part of the arm or as a whole arm in each part. Okay. What about what happens if the the body and the parts of the body are separate? Then what? Can't you have a, a body that's entirely separate from the parts of the body? No. Why not? You know? I mean, if the bodies, if you can't find the body inside the parts, shouldn't you be able to find it separate from the parts? No. Well, then where's the body? Exactly. <laughs> 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 then, then what are you taking to the doctor? <laughs> so, so what are you taking to the doctor? If there's no body. Okay, so you can't take an inherent existent body to the doctor. Why not? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. <laughs> so you take the conventionally existent body to the doctor. What's the difference between the inherently existent body and the conventionally existent body? The conventional one exists. Okay, the conventional one exists. The inherent one doesn't. You can't take the inherent one there. Yeah. Uh-huh. In this, another contrast, I'm wondering... In the previous one, it seems like they also got into the three levels of dependent arising, mm-hmm. right, the labeling. When we, the previous Ashanti Deva, when we were studying this, it seems like they both did that. Oh, okay. So, so you're saying the previous explanation before we did Shanti Deva, we talked about the body being labeled. That's because I brought in the Prasangika view when we were doing that. Okay. Okay, so why would something that, question three, why would something that exists inherently be permanent? And what are the ramifications of an inherently existent object being permanent? Yeah? Something that exists inherently would be completely independent, not dependent on anything, and so unable to be changed by anything that it comes in contact with. Mm -hmm. So the ramifications are, actually, then I kind of got into this, it would have to come into existence whole. But in fact, it couldn't come into existence in whole because that would be changing. So it would have to be beginningless, whole, monolithic, partless, and independent. And it would just be the exact same forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Okay, so an inherently existent thing exists independent of everything else, which means that... What? Which means that it doesn't change. It's... Okay, which means that it doesn't change. And if it doesn't change, then it would have to come into existence as a whole thing. Beginninglessly. Beginninglessly. It come into existence. And it actually couldn't come into existence <laughs> because it's permanent, which means that it can't change. It's always been, always will be, exactly what it is, nothing else, amen. Yeah. Okay. Which would mean that whatever exists would have to exist eternally without changing one single bit. 
So there would be no such thing as relationships in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So there would be no relationship. There would be no change. Everything would be completely static and fixed. And isn't it true, true that it couldn't be perceived by an impermanent phenomenon like the mind? So is it true that it can't be perceived by it an impermanent because it, it would be known by an, an impermanent phenomenon like the mind that changes moment by moment? So, so are you are you saying the mind that changes moment by moment cannot know permanent objects? Inherently existent objects. They can't know exi- inherently existent objects. Can they know impermanent uh, permanent objects? There are certain permanent objects that the mind does know. But, but, but they're not inherently existent. Okay. So there are certain permanent objects. For example? Uh, emptiness is a permanent Emptiness. Space. Space. Yeah, non-composite space. Yeah. Those things are permanent. They can be known by the mind. Okay. But truly, a, a truly existent impermanent thing or a truly existent permanent thing cannot be known by the mind because it doesn't exist. It's as real as a rabbit's heart. It's as real as weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Did you say a truly existent impermanent thing? Yeah. A truly existent impermanent thing would be a truly existent clock. Okay, so another ramification is it couldn't function. Something that's truly existent can't function because function involves change. It involves relationship. It involves interdependence. Okay. Now, when you look at things, do you think they appear to you as if they can't relate to anything else? Well, on one level, we know things relate to to other things. We know that if we mix a bunch of ingredients together, we can make lunch. So we know that there are things that are are related. Yeah. But when I look at when I look at the staircase, I don't see relationship. I see an object that I perceive. I don't. I wouldn't call it relationship. I would call it seeing the staircase. Mm-hmm. So changing my whole thinking to say that there is a relationship between this sentient being with this mind, apprehending that staircase right now is truly existent. So just mm-hmm. thinking about relationship changes it, so that I start second guessing about how I'm looking at this as a solid, independent thing that has no relationship to me. Mm-hmm. That stands out there by itself. Okay. So putting relationship into my mind starts to dismantle the truly existent, looking at this as something that exists independent from myself. Okay. So when the way we see things, they appear to us as truly existent. Sometimes we grasp them as truly existent, mm-hmm. sometimes we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We aren't always thinking about relationship constantly although we know relationship is there yeah we know it's there we we know that you know how this is appearing relates to our mind we know that it's dependent on its causes and conditions 
But the way it just appears to us and the way we often grasp it is as if it weren't. For example, just when we look at people, yeah, we intellectually know people get old and die. But when we look at people, is, is that on our mind when we're looking at them? No. You know, we look at them and we expect them to always be there. And when they die, we're very surprised. Even though intellectually we know they are. Yeah. Stand there and chop those mushrooms and make spaghetti sauce, and by the time it's on your plate, it's inherently existent spaghetti sauce, even though I participated in the previous Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so even when you're cooking, you know that things are related and that you're taking various ingredients and mixing them together. But whenever you get the final product, it appears as that thing by itself, doesn't it? Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So if we haven't seen somebody for a while, or we haven't been someplace in a while, when we go again, we're so surprised that it's different because we thought it should be the same as we remember it. Yeah. Even though we know intellectually that it's changed. Okay, so, you know, you might have uh, a bad relationship with somebody and you know you've changed and they're changed, but when you meet them three years later, you expect them to be exactly the same and you don't give them a chance to be different. And you often don't give yourself a chance to be different. Okay, then why isn't, four, why isn't the collection of the parts of the body a body? Yeah. Because a body is just one and a collection is many? Well, there's one collection. Okay, well. Um, he said because the body's one and the collection is many, but there's one collection. It's still but made of parts. parts. Okay, the collection's made of parts. Okay. Wait, one. But if the collection were it just its own object, then there could be a body without its parts. It would just be one object. Yeah, a collection implies parts. And I didn't understand what you were saying, John, before. Could you say it again? Um, well, if a collection were just one object, then you could have a body without, then you could have a collection without its parts. So if the collection were just one object, then you could have the body without it having any parts. Right. Like the example you used of a dozen eggs, you could have a dozen without having it's not if the doesn't have doesn't have any parts. It's if the body is the collection, and the collection ha- has no parts. Well, I'm confused now. <laughs> Say it again. What you're saying? Um, 
Well, if you're saying like something is a collection of parts and it's inherently existent, then it wouldn't have to have the parts, right? Why not? Because it's inherently existent. Okay, so if a collection were inherently existent, it wouldn't need to have parts because something that's inherently existent doesn't depend on having parts. But here, none of these parts are a body. Mm -hmm. And so you put a lot of not-body parts together, mm -hmm. you can't get a body. Right, so if you put a lot of body parts, which are not bodies, together... You can't get a body. If you put oranges together, you don't get an apple. But when you put the parts of a car together, you get a car. Yes, you do. You put all those parts together. None of those parts are a car. Fender is a fender car. Yeah, but when you put them all together, it's the gestalt. You get something that wasn't there before. When you look out there, you say there's a car there. You don't say there's a fender and an axle and four wheels and that thing. And you don't drive a fender, for goodness sakes. You drive a car. So when you put all those things together, you have a car. It has to be arranged a certain way. Yeah, so you arrange it the cer a certain way, and you got, you got your car. But you just labeled it because there's nothing there that you can point to that is a car. There's a car right there. <laughs> I can point to it. It's right there. Okay, so take those parts apart. Where's the car? Where's the car? The car. The car, the car, the car is the whole thing. The car is only existing. made up of parts. If you spread all the parts yeah. out on the driveway, would you have a car? No, but that's what I mean. You put all those parts together, and they become more than the parts. There's something that's a car that arises when you put the parts together. Where is that? Where is that more? It's right there. Like, is it in between the parts? It's the whole, it covers the whole part. Yeah, yeah, because you put all those, you put all those parts together. Listen to me. You put all those parts together. You put them all a car. Any idiot knows that. Where is it? It's, it's right there in the parking lot. <laughs> she, she doesn't. She looks out there and she looks and she says, oh, there's a fender out there. <laughs> she, she can't even know what a car is. So the the car is a concept, so I'm driving a concept? So that means I can just think of a car and, and I can drive it. Am I driving a concept? Well, a suitable basis what? You designated that term, car, on a suitable basis. Yeah, right. And it's a suitable basis because there's a car there. You can't call it a turkey. You call it a car because there's a car. There. I call it a car because you call it a car. <laughs> <laughs> Are you playing follow the leader? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Yeah, that's what I mean. You look, you have a valid cognizer, you look, and there's a car. 
You put all the parts together in a certain order and there's something more that is there when all the parts are together. Where is that? It doesn't, it's right there in the parking lot. But if you take those parts away, it's not there. That's why I said you have to put the parts together in a certain order. And then it, then it's a car. No, then it's a car. Then you can drive. Because when the parts aren't put together, you can't drive anything. So you have to put the parts together, and then you get in and you drive. But if you take apart, if you take off the tires, is it not a car anymore? No. no. But I can still drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> you can drive a car without tires. Wow. Well, it is. A, yeah, it still is a car. It's a car without tires. Yeah, you can drive it as soon as you put the tires on. <laughs> well, what if I take off the windshield wipers? It's still, it's still a car, of course. How about the turn, turning signals? Yeah, it's still a car. How much do I have to take off before it's not a car? When is it not a car? When does it stop being a car? When the body. How many parts can you take off the body before it's not Well, when the person dies, then it stops being a body. No. Yeah. No. So when the car. Yeah, that's what no. I mean. But the, so you take you take enough things off, and when the person dies, then the body you don't have a body so anymore. The body was in those parts. Actually, you have a dead body. So is the body in those parts? Sure. Is the tire a car? Are the four tires? I mean, no, you need the four tires to have a car. Where is the car? And she keeps asking me. <laughs> I keep telling her it's right out there. We went out there. You cannot show me the car because you're I can't show you the car. Then what in the world are you driving to town? If you are driving the car, show me the inherent existing car that. You and me are thinking of. <laughs> of course, there's no inherently existent car, but there's a car there. There is a convention. Yeah. Yeah, and we drive it around. Yeah, we drive it around. Yeah, so there's a car. So good. I'm glad you knew. These people are so slow. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Does Shanti Deva's question, then what is a male and what is a female, change your ideas of sex and gender? And if so, how? Did you remember where we asked that question? Okay. So, so how, did you think about that? How does it change your idea of sex and gender? Yeah. How, how does the the idea? How does uh, 
His question, what is male and what is female, affect you? Yeah. When I don't think of his analysis, it doesn't do anything. (laughs) It's just there's men and there's women. But when I read through that, my mind gets kind of like changed. And then the whole idea that we make these identities based on this seems ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when, when you're thinking about emptiness, Mm -hmm. then the fact that we make identities based on male and female seems ludicrous. Mm -hmm. But when you're not thinking about emptiness, then there's, he says, what is male and what is female? And you go, yeah, I know. Yeah, because these molecules are just arranged a little bit differently. Yeah, but women think different than men. What do they say? Men are from Mars and women are from Venus or something? Something like that? that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so don't, don't, don't men and women think differently? Don't you have a woman's mind or a man's, mi- man's mind? Well, if you take it out of the body, you certainly don't. Mind is just a bunch of thoughts and perceptions, so what part's female? Then, then why does everybody say women think in such and such a way and men think in this and that way? Because we're conditioned. Because we're conditioned. You don't think men and women think differently? Every person thinks differently. Huh? Every person thinks differently. Okay. There is social conditioning on a conventional level. But you're going to find it overlaps incredibly. Like women think, you know, all kinds of ways, and men think all kinds Okay, but why do people, you know, people get really into this thing of, but, you know, okay, men and women, women think all kinds of ways, men and think all kinds of ways, it's all socially conditioned, but women think like this, and men think like that. Due to clinging to tension, view, and then afflictions. <laughs> but also the mind has a relationship with the body, mm-hmm. so there's an impact on the mind from the body that you have. Because mm-hmm. if you have the same mind stream and you put it in an ant versus putting it in a male or a female, it has an impact on the mind stream. Okay, so the body that the mind takes rebirth in, the, the structure of the body can affect the mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, but does that make your mind male or female? No, but I do have to break it down to the molecular level. Otherwise, this yeah. idea that yeah. the hormonal differences is, is planted in my brain. Okay. So I have to get to something lower than, than yeah. kind of gross parts. Mm-hmm. I, you have to take it much smaller pieces. Okay, because we have a lot of conditioning saying according to your hormones, yeah. that's how you think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you have to break it down into parts that are smaller than hormones. Yeah. <laughs> not conditioned by culture or society. Yeah. molecules and atoms. Uh-huh. Anybody else? How does it influence you? When I thought about it, I um, just realized just how much preconception I have that that just really colors everything. Mm, Okay. So thinking about this shows you how much preconception you have and how much you think male and female are different and how much that colors how you relate to people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What an obstacle it is. What? And what an obstacle it can be. Yes, definitely. And what an obstacle, a huge obstacle. You know, when you see somebody of a certain sex and you say that person 
is male or female, therefore they think like this, therefore they act like this, therefore they are like this, then that is, we're dumping a whole bunch of preconception on somebody who may not be worthy of all that preconception. And narrowing down the human potentiality of every human being in the world. Yes. We not just do it to that, we do it also to animals. We also have preconceived notions about, you know, they're male and female too and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's the first question we ask when a baby's born? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's one of the first identities we get. So change your, how does it, you want to try again? No. <laughs> <laughs> you guys think way too different than me. I'm just going to say it back out. This is like, this is this female and male at Britain? <laughs> <laughs> No, it's good. It, you need practice verbalizing some of these things. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a matter of yeah, learning to do that it takes practice. Okay. So question six: What is similar in imputing body to the parts of the body, and imputing person to a mannequin, and what is the difference between these two things, these two cases? Yeah. So both are imputing something that isn't really there. So misapprehending. Um, wait, wait, wait a minute. So you're saying both are apprehend are imputing something that's not there. So when you impute body to the parts of the body, the body isn't there. Not inherently existent. No, but we're not talking about inherent existence. I mean, when you impute the body to the part to arms and legs and heads and things like that, that's okay, isn't it? She's wondering if she's a car or a body. (laughs) Go on with your idea. So how are they alike? Um, Let's see. Let me me just read this. Um, Imputing a body when seeing a mannequin is false because it cannot function as a person, so it is a wrong We're not imputing a body. We're imputing person on a mannequin. And we're imputing body on the parts of the body. What's it like in imputing body on, on the parts of the body and in imputing person on a mannequin? What's similar about those two? Based on the shape of the parts, we impute Yeah, based on something, we are conceptualizing and giving it a name. Okay? Yeah? Both of those are cases in which we are conceptualizing something and giving it a name. Okay. What's different about those two cases? People agree that a mannequin isn't a person in conventional means, but people think the body is a person. Okay, so conventionally people don't think a mannequin is a person, and people do think the the parts are a body. Okay, so that's one difference. What else is a difference? The mannequin doesn't function as a person. Okay, the mannequin doesn't function as 
a person, whereas all the parts of the body can function as a body. Okay? So it's the same when, you know, they give the example of imputing snake on a rope and imputing snake on the parts of body of a snake. Okay, so they're both examples of conceiving something and giving it a name. But the rope can't function as a snake, so it's an incorrect imputation. Just because you call it a snake doesn't mean it is. Whereas you call the parts of the body a snake, and they can function as a snake. So doesn't that mean that there's a snake in those body, those parts? If there weren't a snake in those parts, how could it function as a snake? Right? Right? You see? Think about it. Write that one down. If there if there weren't a snake there, how could it function like a snake? Yeah, now she's gonna believe there's a car in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. One what? The difference between the mannequin and the uh, body is that one has a suitable designation for the label and one doesn't. Yeah. Okay. So one has a suitable designation and one doesn't. But what what makes that a suitable designation? Agreement. Conventional agreement. Yes. Conventional agreement. It's known by a whole bunch of people that it's really. Yeah. Yeah. Just because a bunch of people know it. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's one of them. <laughs> but but doesn't I think there still has to be a snake in that snake for it to but you know to function as a snake. What is the snake? Yeah. That's how this guy looks at it. When Adam yeah. named it. <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's not just agreement. There, you know, because we can we can agree. We can look. We can look at at this, and we can agree to call it a giraffe. But a snake can bite you, and a rope can't. And we can call it a giraffe if we want, but it's still functioning as a recorder. <laughs> yeah. We can call it a giraffe if we want. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, it's a giraffe. 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 Okay, when it was invented, we could have called it a giraffe. Yeah, and then we'd all call it a giraffe, and we would all agree that it functions yeah, as a giraffe does that. Okay, and then we would all agree if we called, decided when it was invented to call it a giraffe, then it would all function as a tape recorder. Yes. <laughs> there's a very large land animal that had that basis of imputation labeled as a giraffe previously that was also agreed upon uh-huh. before the invention of this now newly named giraffe. Therefore, <laughs> it has already been used. <laughs> oh, we do that with like, blackberries, like Carrie said. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. When they're blackberries, there's no berry there. Right. Yeah. People say that's yeah, it doesn't matter if the term's been the ner- ner- term's been used before. We still impute it. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
Okay, what are the agent, object, and action regarding feelings, and how are they dependent on each other? Come back. (laughs) So what are the agent, object, and action regarding feelings? The agent is the person or the mental state, and the object is the feeling, or the, the... Feeling and the action is the person experiencing the feeling. Okay, so the so the agent is the person or the mental state. The object is the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and the action is the process of experiencing it. Okay. Okay. And then, how are they dependent on each other? They're mutually defined, so you can't have a, um, a, or a person or a mental state can't be a feeler without there being a sensation that's felt and the act of feeling. There can't be uh, the sensation felt without the person feeling it and the process of it being felt, and then the process of feeling can't occur without someone who feels and the sensation that they uh, are feeling. Yeah, okay, so those three are defined in terms of each other, and you can't have one without the other. Are you sure? Can't you have a person? You have a person, and then that person feels pleasure. Yeah? So so that person isn't defined in relationship to the pleasure. There's a person. But the feeling person is. Hmm? The feeling, the the person feeling pleasure is. The person feeling pleasure is? Yes. Because they weren't feeling pleasure before the pleasure will feel in the mm-hmm. But they're still the agent. That The person is still the agent feeling the pleasure. They're not the agent of that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> they have ceased that time, that feeling has arisen. Okay. But... Yeah, but don't you feel like you're just walking around and then you have all these different feelings? So there's me, and I I exist, and then there's a feeling and I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I'm still a person. I'm a person capable of feeling. And then there's a feeling and I just feel it. Because of their contact, that's fine. Can a feeling be there without a person? Is it, where is it? The person, the feeling is just there. Well, where is it anyway? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, feel, the, the feeling is there, you know. If there's a pleasant feeling in the palm of my hand, it's there. So there's a pleasant feeling, and then I feel it. No, there's a pleasant feeling here, and there's me here. And I can't come in contact with that pleasant feeling, and I feel it. 
But I exist before that pleasant feeling, and it exists before me. Right. And we just bump into each other, oh, right? That's that same image I have. <laughs> cool. yeah, colliding into your feeling. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't that the way it is? No. Why not? <laughs> because we can only talk about feeling something when there's a feeling. There's only a feeling when there's a person feeling it. Only a feeling when there's a person feeling But there's a feeling right there. My hand's feeling it. Yeah, because you're feeling it. Yeah, at the moment you're feeling it's it. It's just a thought. Yeah. It's just coming and going. You're not feeling it every single second. It doesn't stay the same, does it? Is what does that, that have to do with the price of tea and shine? Is that feeling consistent 100%? Oh, yeah, it's right there. It's always when it when it's pleasurable, it is pleasurable, and when it hurts, it hurts. So if we were to dismember the hand and take the palm, do you feel it? You bet. It would hurt like hell. It's changed. Of course it's changed. The pleasure went away and the, the pain came. Yeah, the pleasure just disappeared. And it just vanished. I mean, does it? It doesn't go anywhere, does it? Is it hiding behind the bookcase? Well, if you're an experiencer of pleasure, it should still be with you. What? If you are the experiencer of pleasure, then it should still be with you. Using what a painful feeling arises in its place. No, she's not there either. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, so if the pleasurable feeling is there, you're saying then, then what? Um, then it would still be, if, no, I said if you are the experiencer of pleasure. If I'm the experiencer of pleasure, then? You would still be experiencing pleasure even after the pleasurable feeling has ceased and that this pleasurable one has arisen. Well, okay, so so if I were the experience of pleasure, I would still be experiencing pleasure after the pleasure ceased. But if I'm not the experience of pleasure, who is the experiencer of pleasure, who is? The one who ceased at the moment the pleasure ceased. That's why it depends on one another. The one that experienced it. But I cease, I'm still here. Well, the continuum is, but not that moment of the... You're talking about continuum. I'm here. (laughs) Continuum is continuum. I'm here. (laughs) I'm not a continuum. I'm me. You know? You're trying to trivialize who I am? I'm me. all these different things and it's the same me it's not another person 
I mean, it's not that it's children one moment and it's Tarpa the next. I'm still children. Well, yeah, I'm the same person. What? I can be defined in a lot of different emotions. Like, I'm happy and I'm sad. Yeah. So dependent on different causes. Yeah. So, so you're happy and sad at different times. Yeah. So yeah. But, but you're the same. You're the same. You're Tommy. It's not that you're, you know, hairy when you experience one emotion. And one second, or one millisecond, and the next millisecond I change. My cells have changed, my thoughts have changed, my feelings have changed. You look exactly the same to me. Your conception might be permanent, but who I always <laughs> <laughs> My causes of who I am is all dependent on different things. You're changing? Then how come you hang on to all those things that happened in the past? <laughs> Yeah, if you're changing, how come you hang on to all those things that happened in the past and say that happened to me and this happened to me? Because yeah, when I think it through a conceptual standpoint, con- the concepts are, are like fixated on permanent <coughs> standpoints. Mm-hmm. But take away the concept and look into a viewpoint of like numbness, emptiness. I am always changing every millisecond. Yeah. Concept of I. The thought of I will stay permanent. You know, have this label of Tommy, you have this label of body, whatever. But ultimately, I am not that. I am not the labels. I am not the concepts. Mm-hmm. But it, but if you're not the labels and you're not the concepts, then why do you say this happened to me when I was five years old? Because I'm habituated to those labels and concepts. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. you, you're habituated to the labels and concepts. So it's just habituation. So if you didn't have that habituation, then you couldn't say, yeah, I went to kindergarten when I was five? Repeat that. <laughs> if, if you didn't have habituation, then could you say, still say, I went to kindergarten when I was five? Yeah. You probably wouldn't cling to it. <laughs> yeah? You probably just... There's yeah. a concept called history. The know, concept. That we yeah. Conventionally. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, we say, this happened to me when I was five years old, and I am permanently affected by this. This was my childhood, and this, can, you know, right. happened to me, and this is, you know, who I am. There's nothing I can do about it. That's that happened to me. That's ignorance allowing us to remain attached to that. It's ignorance being attached to it. But I'm not stupid. <laughs> oh, a little confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, but we all hang on to things every day. You know, I hear, oh, this, you know, this is exactly what happened in my family. I hear that in this place over and over and over again. Well, we're all ignorant. <laughs> oh, okay. That's why we're here. <laughs> again and again. Oh, this is just like my family. Oh, I've been doing this for years. Oh, this is old stuff. Again, everybody. Whenever something happens, you know, and you have an affliction and somebody calls you on it, oh, this is my conditioning from when I was a child. I can't do anything about it. Well, that's how it feels. <laughs> what? That's how it feels. Yeah, so what you feel is true. 
so you can't do anything about it. Don't believe everything you think. Who taught you that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we certainly feel like, you know, the me now, we feel, is the same one that experienced that stuff when we were kids. That's grasping the true existence. That's grasping a true existence. Grasping a permanence, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Distortion. Yeah. But when somebody says to us, you're grasping a true existence, you're grasping a permanence, do you say, oh, thank you so much for reminding me? No. You say you don't understand. say <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. So, give three reasons why pleasure and pain... Oh, we're out of time. Oh. Okay, what does the word real mean there? Real means, means truly existing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, three reasons why pleasure and pain aren't... aren't truly existing. Yeah, aren't truly existing. Okay. Well, there's still one minute. Give at least one reason. Uh, because no one agrees, and you can be in the same situation... Someone will say this is really hellish, and someone says this is really wonderful, and everything's just the same. Yeah, but they're feeling different things. Oh, you're asking about the feelings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They depend on the feeler's mind. If they were real, they couldn't. They wouldn't change. If they were real, they wouldn't change. Why not? Because they, if they truly exist. Well, not real things truly exist. If they truly exist, then they would have to be permanent. And then I would always have to be whatever that feeling was. Okay, so if they were truly existent, then you would always feel that feeling. You would never feel anything else. Okay, so that's that's one reason that they aren't real. What's another reason? They depend on the mind. So they're dependent. They depend. Pleasure and pain depend on the mind? Yeah. Uh, that, that pain... When I stick my hand in a fire, what do you? It hurts. It's the fire. It's not my mind. Your hand hurts. It's not your mind that is saying that you hurt. Yeah. Your hand. My hand hurts because I put it in the fire, and the fire has power to cause pain in my uh, hand. Your mind is telling you your hand hurts. My hand hurts. Your mind is telling you it hurts. Oh, so you're going to tell me if, that if I say to myself, oh, my, my, my hand doesn't hurt, my hand doesn't hurt, that it could be sitting there with third, first degree burns and it's not going to hurt? Some people walk across the fire and they don't feel pain. Yeah. Yeah. So if you tell your mind enough things, then... So, so if I tell my mind that rat poison isn't going to kill me, it won't kill me. Okay, we better stop. I got to go find that car. But don't you drive down the hill and... Because it doesn't have any wheel. (laughs) Okay.